This is Recode Video, Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm talking to David Gandler, the CEO of Fubo TV. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. We were just talking off mic. That I've been talking to you for years, but we never actually sat yes. down and done a formal interview. So now we get to do one now. Um, you guys have an interesting company, you have an interesting product, you're an interesting space that I follow a lot. Your stock story separately from that has become really fascinating yep. over the last year. I want to talk about all of those things. Yep. And maybe just to get into it at the beginning on the stock side, if the GameStop saga hadn't kicked off in, was it a month ago, two months ago? Yeah, uh, you you would have been one of the weirdest stock stories of the year. You were a company that had gone public through a reverse merger just about a year ago. Right. Uh, your stock was around eight or nine bucks. You're 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 offering streaming TV packages, um, right? Digital MVPD we call it. And and all of a sudden, late last year, your stock became a meme stock, or what we would now call a meme stock. Apparently, the the redditors got very interested in you, and it shot up to like sixty bucks. And all of a sudden, your valuation was sky high. Now it's now you have a bunch of shorts going after you. I think the stock's now settled down to about what half that. You're at probably twenty nine, thirty bucks today. Thirty bucks, yeah. What is it like to go from trying to build a company, trying to raise money, trying to create a product, to now having your stock be one of these crazy? ping pong balls that bounces in valuation in a way that we just are not used to seeing. What is it like to manage a company during that? And what's it like to try to manage whatever class of investors is moving your stock around? Well, I think that, you know, for our company, things have always been tough from the get-go. So this is a company that has demonstrated uh, its ability to fight and persevere and under very difficult circumstances, um, both as a private company and as a public company. Um, privately, we were always undercapitalized. We were always very efficient. Uh, we were always good stewards of capital because, as you know, uh, every company that starts off as a startup is losing money, burning capital. And, you know, I'm sure Spotify and other big companies, Netflix, all have faced uh, doomsday, um, you know, if not once, if not twice, you know, some more. Uh, as a public company, um, you know, our job is very similar. We, we still have to provide guidance, albeit you have a little bit more flexibility than you do in the public markets. Um, everything's a lot more formal. Uh, you have SOX compliance, et cetera. So it, leads, uh, it creates another layer of complexity that you otherwise wouldn't have to deal with as a private company. But I think it suits Fubo very well because, uh, as I said, we're pretty buttoned up and, um, you know, we, we perform every quarter. See, there's obviously, uh, and I think anyone listening to this podcast knows, there's this rush of companies trying to go public through SPACs. Yeah. Basically, what you guys did, it was a reverse merger. Uh, it was an existing company. Ours was more right. complicated. We, we can talk about that. As always, so, always football, more complicated. Um, but so now everyone is rushing to go to the public markets. They're rushing to take public right. money. This was not yep. your intent, though, I think. If, if I had talked to you a year and a half ago or two years ago, uh, I mean, we did talk periodically. You'd raise money. You often raised it from strategic investors like uh, TV networks. Um, do you think if in, a, in an alternate world where you could have stayed private longer, would you have done so? Absolutely not. Uh, I actually, and I don't know if you know this, but in 2018, fourth quarter, I had approached certain investors um, suggesting to SPAC. This is before you know, SPACs became popular. And, and, you know, some said that, you know, SPAC is a last resort, uh, you know, investors frown upon SPACs. So I've always been, uh, you know, one that believed that, look, you make your own 
uh, reputation. You build your business, and um, there's no there's no way there's no bad way to do it, right? So whether it's money from a SPAC, money from a VC, money from your parents, you know, the key is what is the end result? Are you able to deliver for your employees, for your consumers, for your for your shareholders? So I think that companies should go public, and they should go public when they start generating revenue because it keeps management teams honest, right? You can't just change your mind on a whim. Oh, I don't feel like it. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to pivot. I'm going to... And uh, I think that creates a level uh, of rigor that forces you to think about profitability and not, you know, not going crazy and spending ridiculous sums of money. So uh, for us, I think this is the right move. Uh, and as you saw, we transitioned very nicely. Um, you know, we've got analysts, eight, seven or eight analysts now covering stock. We were actually one of the first companies to do a live earnings call. Live. My first earnings call was live. Okay. And I remember, you know, our bankers and our, um, our IR firm saying, you are crazy. Like you get no value out of doing this. Just tape it and then sit there on the phone and, you know, pass notes to your CFO. Mm -hmm. And this is what everyone does. I said, no, because this is a company that is real. It's consumer facing. It's in the live television business. I want people to know who we are. I want them to know who I am. And I'm going to continue to fight uh, for my investors. I want to talk more about the, the, the stock market and how you got into it and how it's working for you. But let's, yeah. let's talk about the business. You're in a space that I cover and write about and podcast about a lot. Uh, streaming live TV, subscriptions. Um, there were a bunch of people trying to do what you were doing a few years ago. There are less now yes. um, because it's a really hard business. And so you've seen... You know, the, the two real leaders in this right now are Hulu and YouTube TV. I think they've like at 4 million and 3 million. You guys are much smaller, 500,000 and change. Yeah. Uh, Sony was in this business. They couldn't make a go of it. They had, you know, all this, I'm, you're kind of rolling your eyes at right. me, but, but I'll, for the benefit of the, no, no, for I'm the benefit, the benefit of, yeah, for the talk. benefit of the listeners, I'll, I'll uh, just explaining yeah, it's a hard course. business. Um, hard. The bigger you get, um, you, you're, it, doesn't really you, you don't really some of the you, you don't get some of the benefits of scale that you do in other businesses in some ways um, yes no we can talk we can but talk yes, about that and right. you just saw at and t didn't get out of this but they kind of conceded that they're going to have a hard time making pay tv work and they've taken their 67 billion dollar direct tv uh, tv subscription business and they're now saying it's worth 16 billion it's actually really less than that cuz they're throwing in other stuff yeah so um, you knew, I'm assuming you knew most of this going in that it was going to be hard. Yeah. And you guys initially sort of pitched something different when you first got in the business. You were pitching a very skinny bundle dedicated just to sports. And that kind of yeah. made sense. Just to soccer. That's right. Actually, yeah. And much more. Uh, so, what was the thought process going in? That, that what was the thinking about how you guys could make money in a market where people really yeah. struggle to do that? So, I think first it's important to level set your listeners. Um, if it was easy, Everybody uh -huh. would do it. Amazon, Google, Apple, you know, Comcast, uh, you would do it. I would do it. It's like, you know, a hot dog stand. The valuation, the valuation of a hot dog stand, limited. Why? Because anybody can go out, rent a, a stand and put it out on any block in New York City and boom, we're in business. Uh, this is complicated. And that's how you create shareholder value. You take something that is complex, uh, something that has, um, you know, barriers to entry, something that seems to be very difficult to monetize. And then if you can create value out of it, right, you've obviously then created shareholder value. 
So I knew going in when I started Fubo uh, in 2015 as a soccer service, everything was great, growing nicely, you know, gross margins, 35%, uh, you know, subscriber acquisition costs, six to $10. I mean, everything's beautiful. And, uh, you know, one morning I woke up and I said, wow, that is just too easy. It's just too easy. And in my world, if things get easy, get nervous because there's something wrong with that strategy. Uh, and I started to kind of dig in over the first seven or eight months. Uh, we had raised our Series A, $4 million. Uh, and I realized that no one was going to allow another Netflix, right? It happened once. No one's going to no one's going to sell you content. Well, no one's going to allow you to grow into the millions and using millions, using right? their content and sort of competing against them. Using yeah. any content, even if even if I was to acquire some of these rights directly, which we were kind of doing, um, you know, I just realized that somebody sitting on the fiftieth floor of some big building is going to say, "Wait a minute, why don't we just overpay? We don't care if we lose fifty million, a hundred million, eight hundred million, and those guys are done." And, you know, at that point, if we feel like it, we'll keep that business going. And so that was the first thing I thought of. Like, this is not sustainable, not as a business, but just because there are rational players, right? This is media. It's a uh, big boys game. Uh, hopefully it'll be big people's game uh, soon. But, um, you know, that was what, what was my, my first fear. The second fear I had is sports is not a subscription business. It's just not. I'm sorry. It's a pay-per-view business, Right. Uh, you have major events, people come in, the technology is great, the user experience is great, the video quality is great, whatever you did is great, but and, they leave. Why? Because they saw the event and they're done. And that didn't occur to you beforehand or, or, or were you the behavior you saw from your users? Our users were that? sticking, but I realized that you, know, you still had churn that was pretty high. And I'm getting to kind of the reason, the, long, the short of it is that you can't get someone to watch more than three hours a week with sports, even if you have a game on every week, right? If you're a Barcelona soccer fan, Barcelona plays once a week, Saturday or Sunday. And so I realized that 10 hours of viewership is not enough to really, one, create a product that has multiple revenue streams. Uh, you, and it didn't, you couldn't really build an advertising business around it. And so I realized, okay, risks around others trying to do this or knock me out of the business. Number two is I can't monetize quickly enough. Uh, and I said, this is going to be the harder road, but at least it guarantees stability. If I lose a piece of content, I have other content. And um, The harder road being making, adding a lot more stuff. Adding more content, making it more expensive, you know, going into direct battle with uh, PlayStation and the the initial DirecTV Now uh, product. And even before then, yeah, Veo, which DirecTV launched a Latino. Sure. And just the cable companies, right? Cable companies. And, you know, I had many pundits call me and say, you're crazy. You don't have broadband. This is a negative margin business. And we're proving out that, you know, you see margin expansion in 2020 every quarter. So, um, you know, those are the reasons why I thought that this was the right way to go. And now you're seeing from 2015 of 10 hours per month or nine hours per month per customer, we're at, a, you know, 127 hours per customer and averaging 7.2 hours, in, at least in the fourth quarter, uh, per day. That's a ton of people watching a ton of content on a daily basis. So you were a sports-centric offering. Now you're a general offering. No, you've no. Got we a, call you've, got, you've got a sports first cable right. replacement service. We're still heavy sports, very heavy sports. You're heavy sports, you don't, yeah, and you don't have Turner, which means there's some basketball you're not getting, and we okay. can talk about that. But it's, it's still, 
you know, if I look at it as a regular consumer, it looks like you're selling me a bunch of cable TV channels for 65 bucks a month. That's what I'm buying right now from Hulu. So if I'm getting into this market as a consumer, why am I buying uh, Fubo as opposed to YouTube or Hulu or anyone else so, who's still in so, it? So, okay, we can, there's, there's a few areas we can talk about. Let's start with content because that's kind of what you're, you're, you're saying. So uh, one is we have, uh, and you, you have Hulu, so I, I'll just speak to Hulu specifically, but we can uh-huh. also talk about YouTube and others. So we have NFL Network and Red Zone, which I don't know if you're an NFL fan. Yep, sure. You don't get that uh, with your current subscription. Uh, if you live in New York and you might be a Rangers fan, uh, you know you don't get that either. Uh, but that might not matter. You're, you might not be a hockey fan or a New York Knicks fan, right? Uh, if you live in Boston, you know you're missing the Red Sox and the Bruins. If you live in Pittsburgh, you know you're missing the uh, you know the Penguins. Uh, if you live in Houston, guess what? You don't get the Astros or the Rockets. So, um, you know, we've got, you've got you've got regional sports deals that, that, that in sense. some cases they don't. We've have. got the largest football package in America. When I say football, I mean NFL and college. We have every college conference uh, that's available out there. Uh, and then we obviously have secondary and tertiary sports, uh, and we carry um, you know a lot of the overflow uh, programming as well. So that's on the content side what you get. On the product side, you get, uh, you know, and this is what I understand from reading a lot of the surveys is love the sports calendars, love the 4K for sports. I, th- I believe we're still the only ones that do sports, live sports in 4K. Again, not not 4K movies and TV shows. I'm talking about it's hard, right? It's, it's The quality has to be really good and there's buffering. Lots of things can go wrong. So we do that. We have a perpetual DVR where you can save all of your favorite games, I still have the 2018 World Cup. I have the 2017 Super Bowl. Uh, so, you know, for sports fans who want to save their favorite moments, that's a possibility. So there's product capabilities that we have. We have multi-view. If you have an Apple TV, I suggest you try that out where you can watch four games simultaneously. It's a pretty cool thing. Um, so you have product features and content really is kind of where the differentiation. And and when you're talking to your consumers, people who signed on, what what, yeah. what is what is bringing them over from this list of stuff? So I mean, look, our slogan is "Come for the sports, stay for the entertainment." So yep. I think for our fourth quarter numbers underscore our ability to market ourselves as a sports platform relative to the virtual MVPD space and the traditional uh, cable platforms. And I'm sure you went through the numbers on the traditional and virtual side. In terms of net additions, yeah, yeah, and on the other hand, like I keep, you know, I guess it's because I have Hulu, but I keep seeing an ad from them saying Hulu has live sports, Hulu has live sports. Yeah. It seems like if you're a regular consumer who's sort of just, these all look complicated, but also kind of very similar. Um, but you think you're breaking through? Well, absolutely. I mean, we can. I mean, if you like to get in numbers, we can. Uh, the numbers to me are very straightforward. 2018, one percent market share of virtual MVPD space. 2019, 3%. 2020, over 5%. And you look at our net additions in uh, Q3, which is our Super Bowl quarter, uh, if you will, quote unquote. Uh, We added, I think we took in 11% of net additions. I think it was about 165,000 net additions. And then in Q4, uh, we, uh, I think our share was 18% of net additions in the virtual space. So I feel very comfortable uh, with our sports messaging and our sports first uh, branding. Moreover, over 95% of our customers are watching sports, which is the reason why we can amortize our sports content, for example, RSNs, over a much broader audience. It makes more sense for us. 
as Disney, Fox, CBS, Viacom, all Correct. increased emphasis on their streaming business as opposed to their legacy business and are clearly going to want to move eventually some of that sports stuff they're paying for broadcast over to streaming. How does that affect what you guys can offer? I mean, if something I used to be able to see on ABC is now going to be a Disney Plus or whatever it's going to be called product. Yeah, so look, I, I've been going through this for six years. People telling me a billion reasons, billion, not a million, a billion reasons okay. why this is not going to work. Apple is going to buy it and Amazon's going to buy it. And, you know, it's just a lot of noise. Um, I think what has recently happened is actually quite important. The NFL rates are going up and I think yep. the, the rates are increasing at a very significant pace. I mean... Yeah, they're doubling for everyone. Yeah, I'm, I'm, Disney yeah, I, I'm being polite here. Yes, they are doubling. So what that tells me is that it's very difficult for any media company, no matter how large you are, to take that out of the ecosystem and just put it on your little platform. And I don't, you know, I'm not saying little in the sense that 10 million or 20 million, 30 million is little, but it's not 80 million. No, and the NFL clearly wants it exactly. to the, exactly. distribute to the widest audience. Sense. That's why the only digital thing they're doing is their Thursday games to Amazon. Exactly. And we don't even know. I mean, everyone is sort of, you know, I've seen different reports say different things. We don't even know what that deal looks like yet. Is it simulcast NFL network? Is it too exclusive? We don't really know. So we'll have to wait and see. But I don't foresee them taking their big dollar sports off because there are a couple of reasons that your listeners should know. One is, you know, affiliate fees are massive. So, uh, you know, you're taking, even if people aren't watching it, you're getting paid for it. And if you're CBS and you don't have the Olympics, guess what? You're getting paid for the Olympics. So they're not taking that off. The second thing is if they were to take it off and not be in 80 million homes, then their potential to monetize via advertising is going to be significantly less because you're selling rating points. So, you know, I don't foresee over the next, call it three, four, five years, especially with the rates where they are uh, for the NFL, um, that, you know, they'll be able to take that off. Or why would you want to? I mean, it's just such a lucrative business model. And there will never be, and you know this better than I do, there will never be a more lucrative business model. So I think this aggregation business uh, is here to stay because it's just too lucrative to give up. So you can participate in that. Um, the same the, the same logic you had about the big guys are never going to let me play. Uh, you've been growing very fast from a, from yep. a low base. At what point do you get big enough that the established players say, well, we're going to have to do something drastic like cut our prices significantly? When you say the big guys, you're referring to cable guys, the cable company? Could be cable guys, could be could be the Hulus of the world, could be... I'm, I'm always fascinated that Google has not just been super aggressive with YouTube TV. Yeah. It seems to me that's the one place they could really break through. But said, it seems like right. it, the, the same logic applies. It's expensive. It's an expensive game at a variable rate. And, um, you know, nobody wants to be in the business of scaling and losing exponentially more. So um, that's why I like this business. I feel like we have a good grasp on how to monetize it. You look at all of our KPIs since we've been public since the second quarter of 2020, and, you know, they've all gone north uh, with the most important one, as you, as you know, is the margin expansion. I'm going to break up this conversation for just a minute so we can hear from a sponsor. We'll be right back. And we're back. When did the idea that you were going to be a streaming TV company focused on sports and also sports betting 
pop up yeah. because I certainly didn't hear about that until I think I guess after you guys had, had done. Yeah, your, well, your remember public. when you're out raising money. So there, there's there's ideas that you have that you love to explore, and there are ideas that investors you know don't want to hear because they don't understand it. And you know the first thing you think is, oh my god, you need you know twenty billion dollars, and so that's not a good approach. Um, the first time I had thought about doing this, I, I'll never forget. I was sitting. We had our office back then. Is on 23rd Street. I think there was like 18 people. And I remember saying, this is just when I started learning about DraftKings. When, but this is before betting. We were talking about fantasy. And I remember right. this fight between FanDuel and DraftKings. And, and I said, guys, wouldn't it be great? And so I remember sitting with one of my co-founders, Sung Ho. And I said, Sung, let's just do this. And we're just starting to build out our video product. And this is a really complex platform. I mean, people don't appreciate how complex a live TV platform is. Um, which is another reason why there's a barrier to entry here. And I'm sitting there and he's saying, well, look, you got to either pick video or betting. And at the time, there's no such thing as betting. And that's not an area that I really understood. Then I said, okay, let's go with the video. But about uh, 12 to 14 months ago, actually just before that, December of 2000, um, and I want to say 19, you know, I'm looking at fantasy, I'm looking at the engagement metrics, I'm looking at our audience, I'm looking at the viewership on the platform. And I started talking about this concept of, you know, Fubo sitting at the intersection of these three megatrends, right? The secular decline of, uh, you know, traditional television, the shift of TV ad dollars to connected devices, of which 90% of our audience is watching on a connected device because it's streaming television. And then this third one, which was sports betting. And given the number of people on the platform watching sports, this was so obvious to me. Uh, and again, I like complex businesses because it creates more barriers to entry, right? It's just, and that's when I started thinking about it. And when we went on our roadshow, lots of investors love this concept. And they're like, how can you do that? Like, this sounds so complicated. And listen, we've built a very complicated business already. We have over 900 local broadcast stations up and running. We have dynamic ad insertion. We do automated, first company to do automated blackouts uh, in the United States uh, with, you know, regional, uh, sorry, local, national, out of market. Uh, we have no network operating centers. I mean, everything is all automated. So we do 40,000 zip codes. It's a, it's a crazy platform. So that's when I went out with that uh, message. And, um, you know, here we are today. And so talk about what sports betting means for Fubo, because the way that the media companies have interacted with sports betting has changed really dramatically over the right. last few years, right? Of course. They kind of pretended it didn't exist, and they kind of winked and nudged, but there was no real discussion of it. You right. couldn't talk about lines. Um, and then they edged into it with DraftKings and FanDuel um, and cut to now. They're, and then there was a middle ground, like, all right, sports betting is now legalized, but we're not really going to, we're going to still cleave that off, and that's going to be the side of our business. Right. And the way we're going to make money is we'll do a side deal with an established casino, and we'll, you know, maybe there's affiliate marketing or something like right. that. Right. Then then you get to you know Penn buying uh, Barstool as a content a, reg a regional casino company buying a, uh, a sports content company basically as, as marketing. Makes sense. Um, and so, where are you guys? Do you want to do you want to send people to casinos, or you want to run your own sports book and actually take the bets? We uh, we are launching Q4 the Fubo sports book. Why? So you'll be running your own. We are running casino, our own. Uh, we just acquired a company. It's a startup uh, called yep. Victory. That is a fully, I want to be clear with everybody here, it is a fully functioning sports book. 
that is pre-revenue because it ran into the pandemic, just like we did and just like others. And so we've got a great team. I think they're rock stars. They fit the fit Fubo culturally. Remember, you know, I get questions like, how can you compete with the, you know, all these big guys in wagering? Mm-hmm. They're actually not as big as the guys we're already competing with. AT&T, Sony, I mean, Sony too. They spent $500 million and $600 million on marketing and they have, uh, you know, 30 million devices in the country and $80 billion market cap. And so this is something that we're used to, building things iteratively, A-B testing our way. And as I said, we're going to use the video playbook. We were at 1%, 3%, and now 5% market share. Most internet businesses are, are you know, it's national or global. Yeah. Sports betting, due to the regulatory nature, you have to get cleared state by state. They right. have different rules, all different sort of commissions you have to sort of appease. Yep. Um, how many markets are, will you be in when you, when you open in Q4? So, so on our earnings call, we announced Iowa. We just signed a market access deal with Casino Queen. And I think that's really good news for us because now Iowa has announced that uh, you no longer have to go to a physical casino in Iowa to go sign up, which helps us a lot, right? You can just sign up mobile uh, via your mobile phone. Uh, and then two days ago, I believe we announced our multi-state deal with Caesars for New Jersey uh, and Indiana. And so, um, you know, three states feels right to me. Again, remember, we're about FUBO, A-B testing, iterating, figuring out what the conversion is going to be from our business into the sports book and how much top of the funnel we can bring in uh, through the sports book into the video. So there's a lot of that work uh, that has to take place. I've already started speaking with regulators personally, uh, Scott Butera, uh, who has 30 years experience, uh, was the president of Interactive at MGM and previously the CEO of Fox, uh, Foxwoods Casinos, you know, took my hand, we went in, you know, we're talking to these guys and, uh, you know, we're embracing regulation because you have to understand how it works to be able to ensure the safety of consumers. And, and, and that's how you kind of build something that uh, doesn't exist today. And that's sort of the, uh, the game plan. So same sort of competitive advantage question, right? So you're going to say, look, we've got a half a million people. They generally like sports. They're watching us because they like sports. So they're natural people to sports bet. By the same token, they probably already are sports betting if they're interested in being sports betting. Absolutely. And they, if, they're, if they're in a state where they can do it, they're doing it on their phone already. Um, what, is, what, what a benefit are you going to offer them? And, and why would they use you instead of going to DraftKings or anything else they can already access on their phone? Well, I'm sure you already know this. I mean, majority of sports bettors have uh, an average of four apps, betting apps on their phone, right? Uh, I did not know that, but it makes some sense. There's a Cambry report, I think from 2020 or 2019, where they talk about how people have multiple betting apps. It kind of makes sense, right? Because they're, they're, they're offering all kinds of come-ons and, and you know, I, they gave me 50 bucks to bet on the Chiefs in a surefire bet at some point last summer. Like, of course, you'll hop in and out of that stuff. Yeah, so our, our position is very different. I believe that there are crossover synergies uh, on the data side. I think that, as a starting point, is the most important piece. There are uh, crossover synergies in monetization in marketing. Wait, so what is what is the crossover synergy on the data side? What what is what does that mean? It's important because think about it, right? The reason why we decided not to go the route of collaborating and, you know, doing a partnership with someone, not because we didn't want to, but because we didn't think that we were going to create an experience that was seamless enough, number one. And then I'll get to the data point. And the number two is we need another recurring revenue stream. If we have people watching 7.2 hours, well, I'm going to give you the economics. 
So you can give me one fee one time. So two years later, you don't need me. Um, but the data question uh, is very important because today, let's just say we have a separate betting app and we have a separate video app. And we and you sign up, you go through the, uh, you know, know your customer. It's called KYC. It's very important. It's, regular, it's, it's required uh, by regulators in every state. And once you're able to link the two, even if you had no product integration whatsoever, and I'm watching, and you know, the, mach- the video machine sees you watching uh, NBA and LeBron James is about to shoot a foul shot, it could very quietly set up the bet slip right on the app before you even have a chance to open your eyes. And that kind of knowledge between what people are betting on and what people can see is very, very unique. That is not something that you can do through collaboration, only because you cannot share that kind of data. You got social security information, right? Uh, you've got all kinds of information that cannot be shared given the privacy rules, and for good reason. So that's why for us, this, is, this makes complete sense and allows us to create, at some point in time, you know, markets that are very discreet for our viewer base based on what we're seeing on both sides. So I, I think it's, uh, it's pretty cool. That's sort of the first stage to it. Uh, and then, you know, obviously, as you get into product integrations and iteration and that, I think, I think we're, we're, our timing is actually quite good. So what do you need? Like how many states, how many markets do you need to be in for this to be, this is real, this is what you're doing, this is a, a permanent part of your business? As opposed to well, it, it will be a permanent. One of the things about startups is that some people forget those that are not in the uh, startup world is that startups' jobs are to figure it out. Right? You iterate, you test, you tweak, you pivot, you tweak, you tweak, and then voila, and then you go double down, and you're and you're good. So that's what we're doing. We're we're adding this in. It already makes sense. You didn't have to do any research. You know that people bet, people watch, uh, and we have fifty thousand events on the platform. Why not? I mean, the data is there. So, uh, you know, for us, really, three states gives us an opportunity to test out and figure out all of the things that we figured out for video. Conversion rates, funnels, and all that other stuff. And then you can very quickly double down. I want to go back to, to how you got to being a public company. I, I, like I said, have been following your company for a while, and the story I kept hearing for about 2019, for a lot of 2019 was you guys were out trying to raise money and you weren't yep. getting the money and it was difficult for you to find it. And then the next thing I knew was early 2020 and you'd done this reverse merger through a company called FaceBank. Um, so how did you get from being on the market trying to raise money to we're going to go public with this weird company called FaceBank? So I'll probably uh, rewind beyond that. <laughs> It has always been a challenge to raise capital from the early days because VCs like certain types of companies and they don't like, so for instance, when Spotify, I remember in 2015 when I went to LA to talk to all the, uh, you know, Series A investors. I mean, I talked to everybody on every street, okay? They were like, never. Spotify took a long time. Uh, billions of dollars, like this is not a business that I want. So it was always complicated. Um, and the other thing I would say is uh, lots of startups are 24 to 48 hours, sometimes 72 hours away from, you know, having to shut down. And you know how many companies are like that. Companies today that are worth 10 billion, 40 billion, 
and one really big one in the streaming space, which is now a 250 plus billion uh, company. So, right, with Netflix trying to sell to Blockbuster mm-hmm. for 50 million. Not because Reed didn't have the vision, uh, but because life is life and, you know, you need capital to, to run a startup and uh, it's capital intensive. So, um, you know, for me, I looked for many ways to do it. And uh, as I said, I realized that I needed to take this company public. I can't, I can't live and work in a, in a world where, you know, six or seven people who go to lunch together all the time decide whether they're going to fund a company or not. But just to spell it out, that where you were in that spot, we're like, if we can't raise, we're going to have to shut down. Yeah, but but you're always every startup is that phase, or else they wouldn't raise money. So right, you know what your cash out date is. Some companies, you know, have a cushion of three months when they raise. Some have a six month cushion, but most are raising because they will be cash out. So that is the fact with every company. Now in 2020, uh, I was at CES. I think that was the last event that most of us uh, did was the CES, I think January 8th or 9th, you know, I was walking around with my presentation, guys, you know, strategics, what can we do? Uh, and that was it. And then you're going into a pandemic and, you know, I said, you know what, I'm ready to be a public company. Uh, I've got fast growing business. I've got real revenues, no kind of, I'll have revenues in 50 years, real revenues. Uh, and I see a path to profitability. I, my, my margins are expanding. I've got strong tailwinds. And uh, I said, you know, why and not? where did FaceBank show up? I, I, I took a look at the company when you guys announced the merger, and it's, it's, it's quite a hodgepodge of businesses. They were doing a Shrek musical and a, yeah, I think, a Floyd Mayweather virtual reality yeah, hologram. Well, that's, good. that's what got yeah. me. That's what got me is that they were a digital uh, technology company that was doing a lot of virtual work, like you said, like virtual entertainment. And so the assets that, you know, grabbed my attention was these virtual assets with of Mayweather digital likeness that that was being acquired, and I thought, okay, well, that could be an interesting entry point for us, and they have technology. Uh, but as soon as I started getting into the, the 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 weeds of everything, I realized that our opportunity was so strong, the tailwinds were so powerful that I realized we should focus our efforts and our resources on the businesses that had the greatest opportunity for growth. Uh, and that is, of course, you know, advertising uh, and uh, subscription television. Yeah, I mean, looking at it when you when you guys announced it, it seemed pretty clear that that you had an ongoing business and they had a bunch of ideas, and then cut to some- yeah, exactly. And I'm more of a tangible guy, yeah. and uh, I said, look, this is all great, it's R and D, but you know, you got to deliver every quarter. So, and I'm not the guy to kind of dream and talk about things that might happen in you know, five or 10 years. I'm the guy that says, look, if I'm, I'm going to do wagering quickly, I said that on November, whatever, 15th, uh, you know, December 2nd, Balto acquisition, January 12th, victory acquisition. And then, um, you know, we did, um, we had our, our earnings call very quickly. You got, you know, three, three market access licenses, and now we're getting ready for regulatory approval. So just back to Facebank for a second. So you guys sort of jettisoned all those existing businesses. And then this guy, John Texter, oh, no. who'd been the CEO of, of Facebank and then was executive chairman, he left. He's still a major shareholder. And the reason I'm bringing him up is I, just this week, he was out tweeting about, he's, he's, he promotes the stock a lot on Twitter. And at one point he, he, he tweeted and then deleted a screenshot of him buying April calls because he thought the stock was undervalued. Do you talk to him about him promoting the stock? Is that do you care well, that he's doing it? Well, first of all, um, he's not a manager at Fubo. 
as you said, he's a shareholder. He's the largest shareholder. He's got like 10% of the company. I mean, if you're a 1% shareholder, a 50% shareholder, or a, well, not a 50%, but you know, minority shareholder, uh, or you own 100 shares, you have the right, as you see with Reddit, people talking about stocks all the time. We have no right to tell him how to live his life. Uh, he has no material non-public information. Uh, and, you know, he hasn't been with the company since, uh, you know, October 1st, I think, or October 3rd, when, uh, you know, we came to the conclusion that we weren't going to go that direction. So I can't even call him to tell him to stop or start or, you know, he has, do you, know, do, do you, do you care? I, I don't care. I mean, just the same way there are people that tell me, not me specifically, but they direct towards me comments, which don't make sense. And I believe, uh, have zero merit. Uh, I look at that and say, okay, well, if one is allowed to say that, and why can't someone say they like a stock, right? I mean, this is America still. Um, but again, I don't, I don't track these things, and my job is deliver results. Yeah. So back, back to where we started, sort of running a public company in the GameStop, yeah. Wall Street bets, Reddit age. Yeah. It seems like something is very different. I don't know if it's a permanent change, right? But there's certainly a lot of, of retail investors who get very interested in the stock one way or another. You have been one of those stocks. Again, like we talked about at the beginning, you, your stock went up right. at a very high value. Is there anything that you need to do one way or another to manage that investor interest and expectation? And, and also, have you been able to take advantage of your stock shooting up to 60 bucks in the matter of a couple months? No, I actually, we didn't take advantage of that um, because we wanted, first of all, you'll see that I haven't made any comments during that time. There was a lot of uh, short pressure at the end of December. Everyone knew there was a lockup expiration of, you know, tens of millions of shares. Uh, you know, we stayed silent. Uh, there were lots of attacks. Some were just absolutely ridiculous. I'm just surprised that you're allowed to just say anything you want and short a stock. Um, to me, there's, uh, there's something here that has to be fixed, but again, that's not my, uh, my job. And of course there are lots of investors saying, how do you react to that? And I don't respond. Why? Because we have, that's what earnings are for. That's what conference calls are for. That's what banking conferences are for. Um, and so, you know, sometimes in a personal point of view, I would like to say, Hey, that's wrong. But as a public uh, CEO, I have to control myself and, um, you know, there's a process here. And unfortunately, you got to wait till the earnings call uh, before you can talk about it. But we did pre-announce in January. Yeah. Uh, and that probably, uh, I, I don't think we were sort of that Reddit play. I mean, the retail investor was, was really focused on, as you said, GameStop and AMC. I don't think we got that run up in January, February that you're talking about. I think what happened for us in January, February was that we pre-announced very strong numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Um, Coupled that with the fact that we acquired a betting platform that owns its own front-end technology. Uh, and I think that was really where probably you know, things kind of moved to the upside. I would assume, again, I don't... Yeah, I mean, I saw people saying, oh, they put out this, this announcement that they bought this little, yeah. this little gambling company, their stock's up, and, and that's cynical on their part. They're trying to goose the stock with these announcements. There's no goosing. I mean, we, we, we're real people. You, I mean, you know me, uh, and most investors in the private markets know me. When I say something, I do it, and my team does. How do you talk to that team, right? Because it's one thing if you're a private company and people are telling you you're yeah. great, it's kind of hard to sort of understand what's going on. And even if you hear you as a big valuation, you can't sell your stock. Now you've got people working for a public company. They see the stocks moving all around. They probably weren't old enough to be working in the first dot-com boom. Um, how do you get them to sort of 
pay less attention to the value of their portfolio, which might have just doubled or tripled in the last month? Um, you know, what we do, we try and address it uh, through uh, counsel. We have um, general counsel, that is. Uh, you know, we have uh, days where we present, you know, material non-public information, uh, Reg FD. We try and explain to them things have changed for you. And, you know, if you continue to perform, if we as a group continue to perform, you know, you could participate, you could benefit from that. Just like you did in the private markets where, you know, you, you added more subs, you know, you got more, you know, more valuation. Today it's different. Now it's market cap or multiple or so. Uh, but we remind people constantly because we don't want anyone uh, to get in trouble. And um, this is still new for everyone. And, you know, I think we try and tell people, look, don't look at it every day. Markets are going to be turbulent. Uh, but I remain extremely confident that over the next three to five years, we are going to build a sizable business and take uh, a good mar- position in the market uh, across three of these uh, trends that I've been very focused on. Do you have anyone in your, at your company or maybe you whose job it is to look at Wall Street bets and, and various other uh, internet forums periodically and see what they're saying about you? I mean, we well, remember that we're digital companies. So we have, you know, people just see it because they're on social <laughs> and they're, they can't not see it. And their friends who, you know, they work in another company or at Google or Yahoo or whatever will say, hey, look what so-and-so said and people sending links. And it's impossible not to see it. I don't think you really have to have someone that's focused on sort of matching. And even if we did, what could we do? I mean, our job, again, is we have a day job. We go out, we tell people what our forecast is. uh, And we try and hit those numbers. We try and exceed those numbers. And that's how we, we add value. Didn't you guys raise money in January while the stock was was booming around? Didn't you do like a, a debt offering? I yeah, I think right? yeah, yeah, we did. We we raised uh, four hundred and two million of gross proceeds. And, um, and was that timing related to the stock being in vogue at the time? No, we waited. We actually we actually did some very interesting things. Uh, we did not have a managed process. A lot of the bouncing around that you saw was typically what'll happen is you know that the lockup is expiring. And so you retain a banker and then you have a managed process where they go out and, you know, price it and they, they kind of sell, sell it out and in a nice controlled environment. And we said, well, you know, let's see what happens. We're willing to bet that it's going to be a much easier process. And I think some of the volume, I think it hit 75 million shares in one day uh, traded. Was, I think there was a week where it was really like, the trading volume was 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 unbelievable, um, and we let it settle by itself. And so when it settled, we then went out to market. So we did not, if we were doing what what you're saying and sort of taking advantage of the price, in the way that AMC it. did, right at the time. Yeah, we would have done it, and you know when the right time was, because it takes it takes about two weeks to do this, right? So uh, we could have done this in uh, you know mid December, where the price was I don't remember, like you said, fifty sixty dollars. That would have been the right time. I think we did it, if I'm not mistaken, at $39, which is not too far off of where, where it is. You know, I think it's maybe 30% off of where it is. It's a crazy world when I'm looking at TikTok and I'm seeing your, your, your stock ticker bouncing around there. It's not a scenario I imagined a couple of years ago, but I guess you didn't either. Yeah, me neither. Me neither. David Gandler, it's been great to talk to you. Um, I've been trying to do this Thank for you. a while. and We'll figure out a way to do it in person when we can. Yeah, no, I look forward to it. Thanks, David. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was super fun. Thanks again to Jelani and Joel who produce and edit the show. Thanks again to our sponsors who let us bring the show to you for free. 
A bunch of more cool stuff is coming your way for free in the near future. Thanks for listening. Thanks for writing. Talk to you soon.